Hey everyone, I'm Phil Albertelli and this is The Week in Doubt, a podcast for atheists, agnostics, and whoever. And so just one quick correction before we begin. In the last episode, the one where I was talking about the death of a young Iranian woman by the name of Masa Amini, she had been arrested back in September by Iran's so-called morality police. She had been picked up because supposedly her hijab was too loose. I believe she collapsed while in custody, and sadly, disturbingly, she died three days later. And I think a lot of people, including myself, you know, have been thinking the same thing. There's probably a good chance uh, that she collapsed because she had been mistreated or abused by the so-called morality police, and that's probably why she subsequently died three days later. And this incident has just sparked outrage and protest, you know, across the world, not just throughout Iran. And I think that's very heartening that people around the world are so moved by what happened to this young woman and the way that women are treated in Iran, that they're standing up in solidarity and voicing their outrage. But while discussing that story, I mentioned Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, I believe it is, but I accidentally said Al Khamenei. Not that I necessarily care about mispronouncing some theocrat's name. It's more that I just like to issue corrections when I get something wrong and keep myself honest. I don't like putting um, incorrect info out there, even if it's over something little. Uh, so there it is. Correction taken care of. And speaking of the Masa Amini story, um, I actually want to do a follow-up. And this one's from my neck of the woods, so the Boston or New England area. And I think, for me at least, that adds kind of an interesting angle. And so this is from CBS Boston, appropriately enough. It's entitled Hundreds Outside State House in Boston Protest Iran's Treatment of Women After Death of Masa Amini. And it's dated October 1st, so just yesterday as I'm recording this. And it's by someone named Paul Burton. Hundreds gathered by the steps of the State House Sunday to protest Iran's treatment of women. We want freedom for all women in Iran, and we want freedom for all people in Iran, because some people are protesting in Iran, and they are being killed in the streets, said protester Saba Razai, I think it is. The protests were triggered by the September 16th death of Masa Amini, a 22-year-old woman detained for allegedly not covering her hair properly. She later died in custody of Iran's morality police. And maybe it's nitpicking, but for the record, I believe technically she died at the hospital. But it could just be semantic. She still could have been considered in custody while there. But if the so-called morality police did indeed, you know, physically assault or beat her while she was in custody, it certainly doesn't absolve them of anything that she technically died at the hospital. I'm just trying to be as factually accurate as possible and to clarify the order of events. As I think I stated earlier, just a bit ago, I believe she collapsed at the station while in custody, uh, quite possibly after being beaten, and then she was transported to the hospital where she died three days later. But I'll continue with the story, and here's another quote. 
We are all that girl in Iran who got taken away, said organizer Elohe Amaji, I think it is. It's just brought out so much anger, so much hurt from all of us that we can't stay silent. Even though us being here right now is a danger to all of us, we probably can't go back to our home countries, but it's worth it. They are here to speak out on behalf of Iranian women, having the right to wear the hijab without fearing for their safety. During the rally, some Iranian women went as far as to cut their hair in protest. And here's uh, yet another quote from the same person. We just want a woman to be free, and we want our young people to have hope, Amaji said. From the steps of the State House, more than 500 people marched around the Boston Common to show their solidarity for the people of Iran. Anti-government protests have entered their third week in Iran. Over the weekend, protests like this are happening around the world. It's, and here's another quote, It's so powerful to see everyone coming together to show this is not what we accept, another protester said. In Boston, they hoped their loud voices of change will be heard by the people of Iran. And that's actually it. It was a, a pretty short article. And at the end, it says Paul Burton is a general assignment reporter for WBZ-TV. Uh, yeah, WBZ Radio, uh, like I was saying last week. Um, that, yeah, that's the station my brother uh, makes me listen to at work all the time. And they also have a, uh, a television channel and a companion website. Actually, I think it was the episode before last that I mentioned WBZ. Um, I think I mentioned it while covering that uh, that false Megalodon story where there was uh, researchers, was it, was it off the coast of Rhode Island or something, who thought they had detected the extinct mega shark, the Megalodon, and it turned out to be uh, just a big school of mackerel. But back on topic, um, yeah, I find it inspiring that so many people, especially in Iran, where it's obviously the most dangerous to do so, are standing up and pushing back against Iran's oppressive theocratic government or regime. And like I was saying in the last episode, you know, I predicted that the death toll would rise, uh, that more protesters would be killed. Um, not because I think, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm Kreskin or something. Now, there's a dated reference, an old Johnny Carson bit. Um, you know, I don't think I deserve a gold sticker or whatever because I was able to predict that people would sadly die. Um, it's just that I think, you know, anyone could see it coming because that's how authoritarian regimes deal with protests, uh, with violence and force. Yeah, and I believe as it stands now, the death toll is up to 76 people killed. But uh, I think at least one Iranian human rights group thinks that it could be higher. And at work, I think it was the day before yesterday on the news, they were, uh, the, you know, on the radio, they were giving a number that was that exceeded 100. So I don't know what the exact figure is. And also in the last episode, I discuss how the Iranian government has been blocking Internet access. So some have speculated that, you know, due to that fact, we might not know what the actual death toll is because people aren't able to, you know, easily communicate uh, with the outside world and let the world know exactly what's going on. 
And I feel kind of conflicted, you know, encouraging people in another country to continue engaging in a dangerous activity that could possibly get them killed. Um, but let's just say I strongly, you know, support, I'm saying you know a lot, uh, what the protesters in Iran are doing. And I hope they're able to stay safe. And I'm glad people around the world are standing with them. I just saw a funny headline. It's from The Insider, and it's dated just one day ago. Iran schoolgirls remove hijabs, raise middle fingers at leaders. That's the spirit. All right, so on to the next story. I don't often discuss feminism on the show, at least not explicitly. But as someone who likes to think they embrace humanist values and likes to believe they're at least a somewhat decent human being, I think my personal views pretty much align with the basic goals of feminism. I don't know much about the various waves, you know, second wave, third wave, etc. And I know we live in this divided landscape where there's this ongoing culture war, and people online are always clashing over political correctness and pronouns, and sometimes just the mention of feminism can make people roll their eyes and set them off. But I think feminism, as you know, being synonymous with women's rights, is very important. Case in point, what we were just discussing, the death of Masa Amini and the oppression of women in Iran. We still need people fighting for women's rights. And I'd probably be remiss if I didn't mention uh, what's going on here in the States right now with reproductive rights. But I bring all this up because it plays a part in the story we're about to discuss. It's so wacky that it's almost more entertaining than upsetting. I got the story from Hemet Mehta's Only Sky, uh, you know, page or blog. It's dated September 30th, and it's entitled, This Fundamentalist Christian Mom's Chart Condemning Feminists is Bonkers. And underneath it says, Lori Alexander, the quote-unquote transformed wife, wants to steer women away from feminism. This chart isn't helping. And so it looks like she tweeted a picture of a spiral notebook with a page divided into two columns. The left-hand column is labeled feminists and the right-hand column is labeled Christians. And then there's a side-by-side -side comparison of various supposed traits, I guess. And so first up in the feminist column, it says, raise daughters to be feminists. And in the other column, uh, you know, under Christians, it says, raise daughters to do God's will. It's like the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. I believe there actually are Christian feminists and even uh, kind of Christian feminist movements. And unless you're a Christian fundamentalist or a biblical literalist who insists on taking all the anachronistic crap about women in the Old Testament seriously, um, I imagine there's plenty of Christian women who support women's rights. You know, they themselves being women and probably not liking the idea that they constantly have to be submissive to their husbands. And then next it says, Feminists, prepare for college and careers, be independent. Christians, prepare to be wives, mothers, homemakers, be dependent on God and his will. And once again, it's not some false dichotomy where you're either an educated woman or a mother. 
I would say nowadays it's pretty much the norm that mothers have, you know, or a good deal of them, if not most, have gone to college. Um, so, yeah. And then next, feminists, be loud, outspoken, dress how you want. Sounds pretty good. Christians, meek, quiet spirits, dress modestly. So there's some real, you know, Stepford Wives shit or kind of shades of uh, The Handmaid's Tale. And then next, feminists, preaches in church, submits to no one, in parentheses, except to boss. I just picture some maniac up at the pulpit, like, screaming and no one can control them. And then in contrast, it says, Christians, silent in church, submits to husband. Sounds like a fun life. And just so I don't have to issue a correction next week, I know I just said that maybe even most mothers have gone to college. I'm talking about here in the States, and even then, I don't know if that's true. I'm not sure what the exact statistics are. I may be speaking just from within my own bubble, because um, personally, most mothers I know my age have, uh, have gone to college. But the point being, once again, that it doesn't have to be either or. You can be a good, caring mother and have a college degree uh, and a job, you know? And then it continues, feminist, single, and has abortions. Those hussies, always off to the, uh, to the abortion clinic for a kick. And then Christians, marry, bear children, guide the home. And it's funny, now that these um, zealots have actually gotten their way and we're starting to see the implementation of all these draconian abortion bans, we're starting to see the problem with it. You know, that there's things like ectopic pregnancies where the fertilized egg um, implants outside the uterus, which can be very dangerous. And there's situations where... Um, the woman miscarries, but as gruesome as it sounds, the deceased fetus is stuck in the uterus or the womb, and they have to have what is essentially an abortion to get rid of it. And there's already been cases where these new abortion laws have gotten in the way of women being able to do that. And... If, once again, as gruesome as it is, you know, if you leave that deceased fetus in the womb, as it breaks down, you know, it can become septic and that can be a very dangerous situation. And there's also just the emotional and mental anguish of knowing you're being forced to carry around your dead unborn child in your womb. And of course, there was that disturbing story in the news of the 10-year-old girl who was sexually assaulted and impregnated. And um, I believe the parents or the family had trouble being able to get her an abortion. And there were some, you know, right-wing Christians acting like she shouldn't have an abortion. And I'm thinking to myself, I mean, I don't think the 10-year-old, a 10-year-old's body is designed to give birth. Um, I imagine other ethical implications aside, like you're forcing a child to carry a rapist baby. Um, what about the physical danger to the child of trying to deliver a baby in a body that small and, and fragile, you know? 
And then next we have feminists uses birth control, fornicates. You say fornicates like it's a bad thing. Um, then we, yeah, we have Christians, fruitful and multiplies, pursues sexual purity. And I'm always thinking to myself whenever, you know, you have religious fundamentalist Christians trying to pump out as many kids as possible. We already have, what, roughly 8 billion people on the planet. Have you seen traffic lately? Do you need, I get stuck in that crap every day on the highway. Do we really need more people? I mean, sure, technically we need more people in order to perpetuate the species. But can we, can we slow it down a little? And then finally, we have feminists twist and manipulates God's word. Christians loves God's word as written. So uh, the people in the left-hand column are smart enough not to take it literally, and the people in the right-hand column insist on taking it literally. That's why I get out of that. Okay, so I thought it might be fun to start including a science-related story at the end of these news story episodes, kind of like I did with that Megalodon story I mentioned earlier. So this week I bring you a story involving LSD, good old lysergic acid. And the idea of trying to derive antidepressant medications from psychedelic compounds is nothing new. And psychedelics like MDMA and psilocybin, among others, have been used as or at least studied as possible psychotherapeutic agents to be used in conjunction with psychotherapy. Uh, but this story is about a potential antidepressant derived from LSD sans the trip. And as someone on antidepressants myself and who's long been interested in psychedelics, I found this very interesting. And so this story is from NPR and it's dated October 5th and it's entitled, These LSD-based drugs seem to help mice with anxiety and depression without the trip. And it looks like it's by John Hamilton. And so it begins... Drugs like magic mushrooms and LSD can act as powerful and long-lasting antidepressants, but they also tend to produce mind-bending side effects that limit their use. Now scientists report in the journal Nature that they have created drugs based on LSD that seem to relieve anxiety and depression in mice without inducing the usual hallucinations. Okay, so it seems that it's not just one LSD-based medication, as I was saying earlier, but potentially several. Uh, and, and it's weird. Uh, I hope there's no family listening. But, you know, I've done uh, lysergic acid LSD a few times. I've done mushroom psilocybin uh, multiple times. And I've never experienced any hardcore hallucinations. I've always had minor things like the cliche or off-mentioned trails where if you move your arm or hand, you can see trails being left by your fingers or maybe kind of minor optical disturbances like seeing an object split into two and then merge again. I remember being on mushrooms at night in the woods and there was a plane flying overhead. I took off my glasses and looked up and I saw the plane divide into two and then merge again. Very strange. 
or maybe an increase in pareidolia, uh, you know, the ability to see faces and shapes and things like wood grain doors and clouds, um, or maybe with your eyes closed, you know, seeing patterns or fractal imagery or, or shapes or something. Um, but I've never experienced any really hardcore hallucinations. And to me, anyway, the real power of psychedelics has always been how much they can profoundly alter consciousness and perception. And, you know, once again, to me, you know, seeing like a cartoon character or something that's not there pales in comparison to having your perception of the world and your thinking profoundly changed and the insights that can bring. But I'm wondering how you tell if a mouse is hallucinating. Oh, do they monitor its brain and eye activity or behavior? Uh, I guess you could. And what I think I mentioned animal testing and passing in the uh and the, which episode was it? I don't remember which episode it was, but recently. Well, I think it was the one where I was talking about whether or not we have an inherent fear of certain predatory creatures. And I was talking about tests they did on Japanese macaques. Um, so I'm fascinated by science. But yeah, whenever I hear about testing on animals, it's always uh, problematic as an animal lover. Um, but there probably are ways they can tell if, uh, as ludicrous as it might sound, if, if a, um, a rodent is hallucinating. But let's continue. And here's a quote. We found our compounds had essentially the same antidepressant activity as psychedelic drugs, says Dr. Brian Roth, an author of the study and a professor of pharmacology at UNC Chapel Hill School of Medicine. But he says they had no psychedelic drug-like actions at all. The discovery could eventually lead to medications for depression and anxiety that work better, work faster, have fewer side effects, and last longer. The success is just the latest involving tripless versions of psychedelic drugs. One previous effort created a hallucination-free variant of Ibogaine, which is made from the root bark of a shrubby plant native to Central Africa known as the Iboga tree. And here's another quote. It's very encouraging to see multiple groups approach this problem in different ways and come up with very similar solutions, says David E. Olson, a chemical neuroscientist at the University of California, Davis, who led the Ibogaine project. The new drug comes from a large team of scientists who did not start out looking for an antidepressant. They had been building a virtual library of 75 million molecules that include an unusual structure found in a number of drugs, including the psychedelic psilocybin and LSD, a migraine drug, er ergotamine I think it is, it must be a, a derivative of ergot, and cancer drugs including vincristine I think it is. The team decided to focus on molecules that affect the brain's serotonin system, which is involved in regulating a person's mood, but they still weren't looking for an antidepressant. Roth recalls that during one meeting, someone asked, what are we looking for here anyway? And I said, well, if nothing else, we'll have the world's greatest psychedelic drugs. As their work progressed, though, the team realized that other researchers were showing that the psychedelic drug psilocybin could relieve, or psilocybin could relieve depression in people, and the effects could last a year or more, perhaps because the drug was helping the brain rewire in a way that was less prone to depression. 
And that's very interesting because as someone who's on antidepressants and who's researched the crap out of them as a layperson, um, I know there, and it's frustrating trying to figure out what the truth is, but there's competing ideas about how antidepressants might actually work. Some people think that uh, drugs like SSRIs, selective serotonin um, uh, reuptake inhibitors, brain's not quite firing at all, all eight this morning, um, work by simply increasing serotonin. And other people have this uh, competing theory that they don't work by altering serotonin, but they work through or, or via neurogenesis by creating new brain connections. And it sounds like that's what they're saying uh, with psilocybin, that there might be some kind of neurogenesis going on, that it's causing new uh, brain connections to form or to rewire the brain to be less prone to uh, depress, you know, depression or depressed thinking or whatever. And in the past, I myself have actually considered trying to microdose psilocybin to see if it would be a, a good daily uh, drug or remedy for, you know, depression and uh, chronic migraine or whatever. Um, I mean, who knows? Maybe someday I still will. Or maybe they'll come out with these um, psychedelic-based antidepressants and I won't have to uh, microdose. Then it continues, there were really interesting reports about people getting great results out of this after just a few doses, says Brian Sweche, or I think it's a French name, an author of the study and a professor in the pharmaceutical chemistry department at the University of California, San Francisco. So the team began refining their search to find molecules in their library that might act the same way. Ultimately, they selected two. They had the best properties, Sweche says. Uh, apologies if I'm butchering your name. My French is terrible. They were the most potent. And when you gave them to a mouse, they got into the brain at the highest concentrations. The two molecules were also extremely effective at relieving symptoms of depression in mice, Roth says. And I was about to be a wise-ass and say, how do you know a mouse is depressed? They stop eating their cheese, uh, which is probably close to the truth. They might lose their appetite or refrain from play. Uh, I'm sure the researchers are trained in, in some degree of animal behavior and can recognize those kinds of signs. Uh, anyway, the next section is entitled, How to Tell When a Mouse is Tripping. Scientists have shown that a depressed mouse tends to give up quickly when placed in an uncomfortable situation, like being dangled from its tail. But the same mouse will keep struggling if it gets an antidepressant drug like Prozac, ketamine, or psilocybin. So totally different than what I thought. I thought they'd be observing the mouse's behavior in other ways, like if it lost its appetite or wasn't playing, but they're hanging the poor mice upside down and dangling them from their tails. I'm not too cool with that. Uh, mice also kept struggling when they got the experimental molecules, but they didn't exhibit any signs of psychedelic experience, which typically causes a mouse to twitch its nose in a distinctive way. And here's a quote, we were surprised to see that, Roth says. So I have to admit that makes me lose confidence a little. This um, psychiatric medication breakthrough is based in part on how a mouse behaves when you hold it upside down. Uh, bizarre. Uh, but 
It continues, the team says it needs to refine these new molecules before they can be tried in people. One reason is that they appear to mimic LSD's ability to increase heart rate and raise blood pressure. But if the approach works, it could overcome a major obstacle to using psychedelic drugs to treat depression. Currently, treatment with a psychedelic requires medical supervision and a therapist to guide a patient through their hallucinatory experience. That's an impractical way to treat millions of people with depression, Chausse says, whatever that name is, society would like a molecule that you can get prescribed and just take, and you don't need a guided tour for your trip, he says. Another advantage of the new approach is that the antidepressant effects would occur within hours of taking the drug and might last a year or more. Drugs like Prozac and Zoloft often take weeks to work and must be taken every day tell me about it. Uh, Drugs based on psychedelics, and here's another quote, take us a step closer to a cure rather than simply treating disease symptoms, Olson says. And this is interesting. I just did a quick Google search to try to find out how bad it is to pick a mouse up by the tail, you know, how stressful or harmful uh, can it be? And I found an inverse article, and it was just published October 2nd. It's entitled, The Way Scientists Grab Mice Might Give Us False Results. Mice have been integral to uncovering some major modern scientific mysteries, ranging from PTSD, cocaine addiction, aging reversal, and more. But a groundbreaking new study in the journal Nature suggests that these study conclusions aren't necessarily true. Thanks to a common tail-holding technique that researchers use when studying mice, Holding mice by the tail is a quote-unquote source of stress that may impair reliability of test responses, the study says. Picking them up by the tail is quick, and people think this will avoid them getting bitten, so this has become the standard method. Professor Jane Hurst of the University of Liverpool and a lead author of the study tells Inverse, The tail technique doesn't hurt mice, but it does make them anxious. To a mouse, being lifted by the tail and carried backwards feels very much like being caught by a predator. I'm still a little skeptical that it doesn't hurt them. I mean, all of their body weight hanging from that one thin appendage. I mean, maybe it doesn't hurt them, but it can't be good. But uh, but I think that's interesting, um, you know, that the study just came out and part of the uh, drug study we we were just talking about involved uh, picking mice up by the tail. Interesting. But on that note, I think I'm going to call this episode a wrap. As always, thank you, everyone, for listening. You guys know the drill. You can like the Facebook page. You can follow the show on Twitter, even though I'm not on there much. You can check out the YouTube channel. Maybe you're doing that now. And if you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can go to patreon.com slash theweekendout and help support what I do here for as little as 99 cents a month. And speaking of that, I think I may have actually lost a Patreon supporter recently, and I had a feeling that was coming. I think it's been roughly almost three months since I've put out any bonus content, and I feel really bad about it. And uh, it was weighing on me knowing that I needed to do that and wasn't getting around to it. Um, I think part of it was, you know, I've been wrestling with some pretty bad anxiety and depression, kind of a callback to that uh, LSD antidepressant story. 
and uh, also having to work more hours at my horrible day job. But none of that is an excuse. I know I, I should have been putting out more bonus content. And I think some people will support a, uh, a creator on platforms like Patreon simply because they like their regular content and they want to support them. Other people, I think rightfully so, expect bonus content, especially when I had a habit of putting it out in the past. And that's what that platform is for, to reward uh, supporters. And uh, I know it's something I have to do and I plan on doing it. So my apologies. I know, bad host. Um, but yeah, uh, there's my mea culpa. I'm going to do my best to get some more bonus content out soon. But yeah, if you do want to support me monetarily, there is Patreon. And uh, I guess with that being said, all right, brothers and sisters, uh, until next time, cue the upbeat ending. <laughs>